Well, I want to share with y'all from an article from the Washington Post back in September of 2018. It was uh, written by a lady named Karen Tumulty. And it was basically sharing a letter from Ronald Reagan, former president, uh, to his dying father-in-law several years ago. And this is what she wrote. Something tugged at Ronald Reagan on that August weekend in 1982. The president noted in his diary, more of Saturday's work plus a long letter I have to write to Loyal. I'm afraid for him. His health is failing badly. Loyal Davis was Ronald Reagan's father-in-law. He was a neurosurgeon and was just days away from passing away. Something else worried President Reagan at the time. He said the dying man was an atheist, and he once wrote this, I have never been able to subscribe to the divinity of Jesus Christ, nor his virgin birth, and I don't believe in a resurrection or a heaven or a hell as places. That obviously bothered Reagan. And on the other hand, he believed that everyone would face a day of judgment and that Davis's was very near. So the most powerful man in the world put everything else aside. He took a pen in his hand and he set out on an urgent mission to rescue this urgent father-in-law. This letter was found in the Reagan Library as part of Nancy Reagan's personal documents. And she said this is how the letter went to his father-in-law. Dear Loyal, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write to you ever since we talked on the phone. I'm aware of the strain you are under and believe with all my heart there is help for that. It was a miracle that a young man of 30 years without credentials as a scholar or a priest had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived all put together. Either he was who he said he was or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and a faker suffer the death that he did? Then it said that he wrote out John 3.16 for his father-in-law and then added at the end, we have been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we have done all we can. When we've come to the end of our strength and abilities and we'll have that help. We only have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness and mercy. So I know you're all wondering, did it have an impact? Did what he wrote to his father-in-law make a difference? Well, Nancy Reagan said, who was with her father as he died, said that that letter he received from his son-in-law did, he did turn to God at the end of his life. It did make a difference. Now, there may be some of you here today who are thinking of someone that you love. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend that maybe you know is, is far from God, is maybe an atheist. Maybe that's angry, for, angry with God. And they may say some of the things that uh, uh, Loyal Davis wrote. You know, I don't believe in a resurrection. I don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. But at some point, it bothers you because you do believe in those things. You do believe there's a a heaven and a hell and that we're all, after the judgment, going to go to one of those places and it concerns you. And you want your loved one or your friend to be eternally, not separated from God, but eternally with God. And so maybe you're thinking about, you know what, I need to talk to them. Maybe you have and that can be awkward, can it? Especially if it's family or friends. 
But I would encourage you today, as he did, to write that letter, to have that conversation. You don't know exactly what, but at least you know you have presented it to them. But there will come a time for each of us, and many times we believe, oh, we have plenty of time to make our peace with God. Oh, I have plenty of time to talk with that friend or that family member, but we don't know. We're not guaranteed the next minute, the next hour, the next day, are we? We never know. Well, today we're going to look at three men who faced death as they were all crucified together. I started a a sermon series last week on the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross, and we looked last week at where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so today we're going to look at some more words that Jesus spoke from the, from the cross. So we know that Jesus was crucified in the middle and uh, there was a, a criminal or a robber on either side of him. We, we know this from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Gospels account of Jesus' death that day. And they're all a little different, but they're also very similar. But there was no coming down off that cross for any of those men that day. They were nailed there until they died. Jesus had had known from the beginning that this day was coming. He had talked about it. He had told his disciples, we read in the Gospels on three occasions, that I will be handed over to the authorities. I will be crucified. But on the third day, I will rise again. And it just seemed to go right over his disciples' head. And even, in fact, in some of them said, no, that'll never happen to you. That can't happen to the Messiah. But because of Jesus' incredible grace and love for all of us, for all of humanity through all of history. He was willing to endure the shame and the suffering of the cross in order to save all of us. Save us from our sins so that we could be eternally with God rather than eternally separated. He predicted and knew that he would die, but he also predicted that he would resurrect from the dead on the third day. And he would ultimately be back at the right hand of his Father God in heaven. But as Jesus was crucified, there were these other two criminals, one on each side. They were also being crucified. And, you know, they didn't know. They were not sure of their destination. But they knew one thing for sure, that they were going to die on that cross. And then what? What would be next? And Luke gives us an account of the conversation Jesus has with these two criminals as they were being crucified. So I want us to look at that today. Um, We're going to look at Luke chapter 23. Verses 35 through 43, and I believe that's going to be on the, on the screen. Thank you. Or you can look on your, on your phone or your Bible. But listen to this account that uh, Luke gives us. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, Luke is the only gospel that records this in detail. Matthew and Mark both talk about there being a criminal on either side of Jesus and even says that uh, they hurled insults. 
And John mentions that there were two others crucified with Jesus, but only Luke goes into this detailed conversation that Jesus has. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt that all of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. There is a reason, an important reason, that Luke was inspired to give us this special conversation that Jesus had that day. Luke's account allows us to see these men as more real and more personal. The focus is obviously on Jesus for, for certainly the good reason. But these two were being executed, not for anybody, but because of their crimes, because of robbery, it seems. And we don't know if this was a one-time offense, if they had just gotten caught the first time they did something like this, or maybe this had become a way of life and finally it caught up with them. They got caught and they were going to be made an example of in front of everybody. But when you think about it, they were, they were sons. They had a mom. They had a dad. And their mom and dad probably heard that their son was going to be executed. Maybe they had a wife. Maybe they had kids. And again, their wife and their kids are hearing that their, their husband, their father, is going to be executed in front of everybody in the community. you got to wonder how that would feel. How about friends who were maybe there that day watching them suffer on the cross? What were their thoughts? We can speculate on a, a lot of this, but we don't know. We just know they were there, and it seems that they were pretty much criminals. I wonder if they had heard Jesus maybe teach at some point in their community as they moved in and out. They heard about this Jesus probably. He had a lot of popularity. Had they heard him talk in parables? Had they heard about this kingdom of God that Jesus talked about so much? Had they maybe seen him perform a miracle or two and said there's something special about that guy? He has to be from God. It does seem that both of these men were at least somewhat familiar with Jesus, somewhat familiar with his ministry, and maybe even some of the things that he taught or claimed about himself. Because Luke tells us that the first criminal says, aren't you the Messiah? Then save yourself and us. So how did he know that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah? Was it because he heard Jesus claim that, or did he hear other people say that? It seems to indicate that he had heard Jesus' claims, and again, either from listening to Jesus himself or hearing it from others. But if we could imagine the tone that he said this, aren't you the Messiah, save yourself and us, it would seem to be this bitter and angry and sarcastic tone. He had no signs of hope for the afterlife. He had a skeptical, hardened heart that seemed unreachable as he died there on the cross. His comments to Jesus were clearly not okay to the other criminal on the other side. The two seemed to have been partners in crime because he said, hey, you know we're getting what we deserve. You know what we did. I know what we did. But his tone is very different. He doesn't pile on with the insults like the religious leaders. He doesn't pile on with the other crowd. He doesn't pile on even with his partner in crime. He seems to know something and have heard Jesus at some point talk about this kingdom of God. And maybe even Jesus and the Father being one. And maybe he understood it, maybe he didn't. But he seems to understand that Jesus really is who he claims to be. He rebukes the other criminal and even claimed not only knowledge and belief in God, but recognized the need for a healthy fear and reverence of God. He says, don't you fear God? Even as you're dying, you don't have a fear and a reverence for God? What's wrong with you, man? And he admitted that he was being punished for what he did. He didn't back off of that. And he goes on to defend Jesus and states, This man has done nothing wrong. 
Now, I've always wondered, how does he know that? Where does, how does he come to that conclusion that Jesus has done nothing wrong? And again, I say there must have been more knowledge about Jesus and his life and his ministry than, the, than we know about from reading the Gospels. This man must have experienced to have that kind of confidence that Jesus was innocent and that Jesus really was, even after his death, going to be part of this kingdom that he talked about. Now, he seemed to ask authentically, with humility, that Jesus remember him when he comes into this kingdom. He really believed that. Again, there is this hope, even in this you know, realization that I'm not coming down off of this cross. I'm nailed here. I'm going to bleed out. They're not taking me off that cross till I'm dead. But he seems to have this hope, this assurance, this faith that Jesus really is the Messiah and will, even in his death, establish and have power in this kingdom of God. And then Jesus looks at him and says, Today, this very day when we die, you will be with me in paradise. That had to be hopeful. But I think about this and I think of two men with seemingly familiar lives and yet with this tragic and humiliating end to die in front of your community as a criminal. One is hardened, he's prideful, he's unbelieving even in those last moments of his life where there's no chance of surviving. He doesn't seem to change his heart. But the other one is softened, he is humbled and believing even in those last moments when he too realizes there is no chance of surviving but he has a different attitude. So I want to spend a little time this, this morning, and this is going to be a lot of scripture, and it's going to, I know for some of you, it's going to feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant for a minute, but I think this is important. When we think about Jesus and, the, and, and these two men, and they're talking about the afterlife, where did they, you know, where, where did they get that? Where does that come from? What is our belief about what happens in the afterlife? You ever thought about that? What happens the moment you die? Where are you? Where do you go? We don't know for sure, do we? Because none of us have ever been there. Every time I do a funeral, I think about that. As I preach that funeral, I go, this person now knows what we all want to know. What's it like? Where do you go? This person now knows what that is like. But after a person died um, in this culture and even today, we believe that the body of that person is buried in a grave or a tomb or maybe burned or, or cremated, as we say today. But it's also believed that the soul is the inward person, who we really are. And that would go to what we receive, referred to in the Bible numerous times as a place called Sheol or Hades, in the heart or the center of the earth. And there were two places, it seems, in this Sheol or Hades. A place of torment for those who had been unrighteous and for those who had rejected God. And a place of blessing for those who had been righteous and faithful to God in their lives, also known as the bosom of Abraham or paradise, as Jesus refers to here. Now, where do you get that belief, Craig? Well, I want us to read something that Jesus told, a story that he told. And if, as we read this, I think you'll understand why they believed what they believed. And it's from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And I think we're going to have that up as well, too. And again, we're reading a lot of scripture, but I want you all to be clear about some of this stuff. So Jesus told this story about the afterlife. He said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received his bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if there is someone from the dead, if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Wow. Now, do you see where I get that? You see, that's where that comes from. Jesus told this. If anyone knew about what it was going to be like, it was Jesus, because he was God in the flesh. But also in Matthew chapter 12, and that's not going to be up there, but I'm just going to refer to a couple of other scriptures because I want you all to see this is important. Jesus himself referred to the story of Jonah in the Old Testament of being in the belly of of a huge fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of that huge fish, I will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Again, talking about where he was going to be after his death. And in John's gospel, he records this teaching. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Don't be amazed by this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will will rise to be condemned. And Paul, in the Ephesian letter, in the Philippian letter, we're going to read some of these. And Paul wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament to the early church, to those who were becoming followers of Christ. And he shares some of this, this with them as well. In Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, he refers to uh, Psalm 68 and he says this. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gift to his people. And Paul says, so what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly region? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Which leads many to believe that after Jesus Uh, Christ rose from the dead that he ascended to the Father, taking the saints who were with Abraham in Hades to heaven with him, thus took captivity captive, as we read about in that letter to the Ephesians. That paradise was then moved to heaven, as confirmed to us by the Apostle Paul, who speaks of a man in 2 Corinthians, whose letters to the Corinthians, who um, was caught up in paradise and heard unspeakable words. So with Jesus Christ's work complete through his death and his resurrection, the believers who had been confined to Hades were now taken to heaven to wait in God's presence until the time of their resurrection. 
to enter into his kingdom on earth. And since that time, all de- at death, all believers go to paradise in heaven to await the time of their resurrection. Now, when you hear a funeral, don't, isn't that the way we present it? And listen to what Paul says further in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make, our goal, make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that... Each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then to the Philippian church, he writes this. I eagerly expect and hope that, in, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So as I read those things, I know that was a lot of scripture thrown at you, and some of you are going, what? But it, it says when we die as a believer, we will be, as we leave this body, we will be in the presence of Christ. And there's some other things that are going on. There's going to be a resurrection and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we don't know all about that. But it seems to clearly state, and Jesus and Paul uh, you know, makes it clear too, that that seems to be we will, when we die as a believer, will be with Christ. But I want to go back to our story as we think about those two men on the cross with Jesus in these conversations. Now, I don't know about you, and I hate to admit this, but sometimes when I hear that story, I go, that's not fair. That's not fair that that guy seems to get in. Because he lived this, you know, this, this life that wasn't a good life. He was a criminal. He's dying a criminal's death. And then seemingly at the end he can just go, oh, I'm sorry. And hey, Jesus, remember me. Does that bother anybody? I know you're not going to raise your hand. I'll be the one that admits it. It doesn't seem fair. And as Christians and as church people and as preachers, we can be pretty self-righteous sometimes. And we think it's because of all the good stuff that we do that we should be in. And we forget that if it was about all the good stuff that we could do to get in, we never needed Jesus to die for us. And we most certainly all need Jesus as our Savior to die for us because we can't, no matter how many good things we think we do, is enough. But it seems like, seriously, all he had to do was simply trust Jesus to be his Savior and he's in? Yes. Isn't that what Jesus said to Nicodemus? And you may, who is Nicodemus? That's where we get John 3.16. A religious leader came in the middle of the night to talk to Jesus. And in John 3.16, we have that conversation. And he said, basically, as we've already said, Ronald Reagan wrote it in his letter. John 3.16 is one of those verses that so many people all over the world seem to know first. God loved. God gave. We believe. We receive. Is it that simple? Yes, it's that simple. That's the grace of God. And if we're still not convinced of that, because think about it, that man could not get down off the cross, could he? He couldn't start living right tomorrow. He couldn't try to make amends the next day because he was not coming down. He was going to die on that cross. There was no more way, there was no way to repent or, or turn things around the next day because there wasn't going to be a next day on earth. 
And if you're not convinced of that, and I need to be convinced, I think about Jesus' parable of the vineyard workers. And if you're not familiar with that, I want to read that from Matthew 20. I think we're going to have that up as well. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day and doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Am I not being unfair to you, friend? Did you not agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. If I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you, don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Man, that punches me right in the gut when I think, oh, it's not fair. It's not about fairness, is it? It's about grace. And we all need grace. We all need mercy. So as we hear this conversation from the cross, do you rejoice that this man made it in? Do you rejoice that Ronald Reagan's father-in-law made it in? Or do we go, ah, this is not fair. What, are you going to be mad when you see him in heaven? You're not supposed to be here. But sometimes we act like that. We should be happy that even in the last hour when someone is saved from eternal separation from God, we should rejoice in that. Or are we envious because God is gracious and think it's not fair? Well, that parable always gets my heart right. And we think about John 3.16. The verses right after that say this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Well, today we offer the opportunity to come into the light as this man next to Jesus hanging on the cross. He brought it to light. He goes, I know. I have all these deeds and you know it, Jesus. There's nothing I can hide from you. I'm dying today. You know I deserve what I get here. My life is not what, what it was supposed to be. I know, Jesus, but I trust you. I come into the light. He believed in Jesus. He trusted in Jesus to be saved. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt he was in paradise that very day with Jesus. And he will be eternally with Jesus because of his faith in Jesus. Who needs to do that today? Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to do that. And maybe you say, oh, I've already done that. I'm, I'm, I'm confident in that. 
This encourages me, but there's maybe others who say, you know what? Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're, you're hardened. Or maybe you're thinking about a friend. Maybe you believe it, but you have a friend or a family member that you worry about. But take heart, even in the last hour. Paul talks about it in another letter, that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everybody to come to repentance and the saving grace that is brought through Jesus Christ. So we're going to offer an invitation. I know of one that's coming this morning to accept that and be baptized into him. Maybe there's somebody else here today. So we're going to offer that invitation. We're going to stand and Kevin's going to lead us in a song. And if you have a decision to make, just come forward and we'll walk you through it. Let's stand together as we sing.